This week on a lively experiment, next month voters will decide whether to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on school construction, with a lot of questions still unanswered. And the race for the first congressional district seat heads into the home stretch. We'll tell you what a recent poll says about the race. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Billy Hunt, chairman of the Libertarian Party of Rhode Island. Nancy Lavin, senior reporter for the Rhode Island Current. And political contributor, Jim Vincent. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Rising interest rates and skyrocketing construction costs have not deterred half a dozen communities in Rhode Island from asking voters to approve bonds for renovations or new school construction. Their sell, an enhanced state reimbursement that expires next year. But is this the right time to be launching these pro uh, projects? Billy, let me begin with you. You and I are both in communities where they're asking this. You've been paying pretty close attention to this issue. Sure. I mean, obviously, this is something that uh, is very important for the education in Rhode Island and something people want to be considerate about. Uh, the, the question I have is the, the logic behind having these type of elections during uh, a non-election year. We're, we have a special election. We're going to have a small percentage of the voting population come out and obligate these cities and towns to, uh, what is it, something like $865 million of total school funding uh, between, you know, Middletown, North Kingston, Bristol, Warren, Barrington. And uh, the question is, is that, is this a situation like uh, gambling where, uh, you know, we can easily get a bond passed uh, when it's a general referendum for the entire state uh, for gambling. But uh, when it comes to a city like Newport, when it comes to actually having gambling in their city, they've actually rejected uh, that proposal. So uh, is this something where it's easy to get school funding bonds passed, uh, you know, in general, but when it comes to actually hitting the rubber to the road in the communities and the local communities that are actually going to be funding the majority of this, uh, you know, are they worried that they're not going to pass the bond? So they're trying to squeeze them into these special elections where special interest and a low voter turnout will be obligating uh, the taxpayers is really my concern. Well, I think, you know, it's pretty well known that most of the schools in Rhode Island need repair or need to be replaced. So they need to be have done yesterday. So I don't know if there's anything nefarious going on in terms of trying to schedule an off-year elections. I think people are just doing them as fast as they can uh, because the need is there. So I just think that uh, perhaps the, uh, the cities and towns should be more uh, transparent in terms of exactly what people will be voting on. I think that there could be some work done there. But I think that, uh, you know, these projects should have been, they needed to be done yesterday because uh, you've got some major problems. Look at Bristol with the flooding in, in the basement. Uh, so I think that education and the safety of our children is so important that I think you just got to do it whenever you can do it. Yeah. But, I if think, it uh, but if it was so important, why didn't they do it during the last November election? I mean, does anybody remember what the $400 million worth of bonding that was voted on back in 2021 when we had a special election? And uh, all these school bonds that are being, uh, you know, floated out during these uh, special elections election years, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that this is something that if it needs to be done yesterday, it's something that we should have been focused on. Well, Why are we waiting for a special election when the ex expiration is coming I up? Think part of the problem, question. I think part of the problem is, though, it's the, it, well, not the problem, but the issue is the enhancement from the state is going to be expiring next year. So I think a lot of schools are waking up and saying, if we can get almost half of it reimbursed, right? 
Yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing is perhaps it seems like, you know, as you alluded to with interest rates rising, um, you know, we've seen projects, not school projects, I've written a lot about the soccer stadium in Pawtucket and how costs have gone up because of rising interest rates and supply chain woes. Um, I don't know, but it could be that people were kind of waiting to see if the economic conditions would be a little more favorable to borrow this year, and they're not. But now, you know, it's kind of rubber meets the road, borrow or, or as you said, lose the incentive. I think to me the thing that is sort of curious and what you wrote about um, in your story last week is when a city like Warwick approves bonding, but then costs go up, both because of rising supply costs and interest rates and also things like bond underwriting costs that were not included in the original ballot question. So voters, however many there are, are voting on something that costs X amount in November, but may actually cost, you know, 20% more by the time the bonds get issued. Yeah, well, you know, you've got to be transparent. You've got to make sure you get it right the first time. You can't have, you know, voters later finding out that this wasn't in there, this wasn't in there. Uh, I don't know why people uh, wait and they didn't do it in the past, but I do know that with those incentives expiring, it's incumbent upon any city or town that wants to deal with education and the buildings to, to get those projects going now. The, gen the General Assembly has extended the deadline twice already, right. so the fact that they're going to sit here and say that that's the reason why we're pushing this through at the last minute is kind of uh, uh, just a red herring, in my opinion. Yeah, the, and what Nancy alluded to, I'd done a story for the Hummel Report that was in the Providence Journal about a week ago. In Warwick, they've, because, look, if interest rates and, and rising uh, construction costs are going up, you can't afford as much, then they start trimming stuff out of the project. And they call it, there's this great euphemism, that, great or not great, called value engineering. Engineering. I mean, doesn't that sound great? Hey, value engineering. It means the track might go, the lighting might go, the air conditioning. So from a philosophical point of view, and the guy that I talked to said, should should you go back to voters if it changes significantly? I, I guess. I I think 100%. I mean, a lot of these, uh, you know, programs are sold by the add-ons and the things like the track and the field and the lighting and, and, and being able to do certain community events uh, at the building. Uh, you know, the other question is, is that where you have these large school buildings, uh, we're basically setting ourselves up for the next 50 years of the same educational system that we have right now. There's no innovation. There's no, uh, you know, charter schools and, uh, you know, private schools have been doing a lot better in cities like Providence and stuff like that. So why aren't we looking for different models and of going ahead and rebuilding the same exact failed education system uh, in for the next 50 years and condemning our students uh, to to basically that same model. It's a good point because uh, we've already taxpayers statewide have already approved uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in bond. And I wonder too in Providence. Remember there was a big deal a couple of years ago about. Um, we've got all this money. We're gonna. When the Hopkins report came out, it was oh, we're gonna we're gonna put money into all the schools. It, you know, is that happening? You don't hear a lot about that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think probably everything that people thought was gonna happen in the wake of the Hopkins report has, um, you know, not really materialized to the degree that we thought it would in terms of um, both, you know, funding, but also just obviously with the state test scores that have come out, you know, school performance, what the state takeover has meant for Providence Public Schools. Um, whether that's a failure or not, I think depends upon who you ask, but I think we haven't really seen the concrete 
recommendations that the Hopkins report laid out really come to bear, and it's been And there's a little years. bit of a, a disconnect because while the state's running the education of Providence, the schools still belong to the city. Right. So there's kind of a tug, and, you, and there was a big issue a year ago with closing some elementary schools, mm. that type of thing. Well, going back to the original thing in terms of should the voters get to know, uh, get, get another, decide to vote again in terms of any, any increase in terms of the, the cost, who determines what the, that increases, where that threshold is. How is that determined? Who makes that decision? Right. Is it is it enough different that you would have to go back? And what's that What, what, what line? is that? What's that line? What's that threshold? And, and in terms of the Hopkins reports, I agree. You know, there's a lot to, to be said about opportunities missed or have been missed up to this point. So hopefully, you know, those opportunities will materialize over the next couple of years because, you know, I know I'm disappointed in uh, what I, I'm saying. Do you think any of those bonds are going to go down in any community? No, we've, what, 60% uh, bonds pass in this state uh, in general, so it's kind of a moot point. But, uh, you know, again, they, we have no problem about spending and putting money on the credit card, uh, but to the point that we needed to keep uh, the school buildings uh, maintained and everything like that, we don't have a plan like Peter Alvidi does for uh, the infrastructure plan uh, about maintaining these schools going forward. And, you know, are we just... Put, throwing money at the problem and rebuilding schools for the fact that they're just going to deteriorate over the next uh, few years anyway. All right. The Act on Climate passed a couple of years ago, set out benchmarks for trying to get away from uh, carbon footprint. And a lot of people have said, well, how are we going to measure this? What are the metrics? Nancy, you wrote about this this week, that there's yeah. an interim report that's come out. Yeah. So, I mean, the sort of top line news is, oh, we're doing great. If you look at 2020, well, no one was driving, no one was flying. No, no one, was, one was leaving their house. Yeah, I mean, the, the <laughs> first line of the story I wrote was nothing like a pandemic to slash carbon emissions. But kind of the kicker to that is that, um, you know, we expect or the DEM, which does reports the inventory based on federal data, uh, expects emissions will go back up for 2021, which will be out next year. And kind of the other... Um, I think interesting thing to me as I've covered this is that, you know, Act on Climate sets these incremental benchmarks of where we need to go relative to the 1990 baseline. So the first benchmark was 2020, the next one's 2030. However, because there's this long lag in when the EPA is able to collect and then submit the data about where our emissions are coming from and how much they are each year, we're not actually going to know if we meet or don't meet the, the it's 20, a th three year three disconnect. Year, three year lag. So, you know, 2030, we're not going to know till 2033. And the other part of that that gets interesting is at some point, I don't remember what the year is, people can start suing the state um, for failing to meet the benchmark, but it doesn't say, you know, the benchmark is, thir is 2030 for, you know, 45% reduction as we find out in 2033. So it's unclear when the lawsuits are going to start and how the attorney general is going to be able to defend those if we don't have the data. Um, and I think DEM, you know, they, I think from my reporting kind of feels a little hamstrung. Like they're at the mercy of the federal government. They, a lot of other states are also asking the EPA to kind of like speed up the data collection process. But at this point, we don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, the, the two biggest uh, drivers of carbon emissions in the state is transportation and home heating, I believe. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the, the Jim, you did a great story about uh, the state's failure to even comply by their own mandates where less of 10 percent of the vehicles that they purchased uh, are not plug-in hybrids or hybrid vehicles themselves. Uh, you know, this is something that is, is a growing issue where I know dealerships uh, are turning away EV inventory because they have over 100 days of inventory and they can't keep internal combustion engines on the lot uh, because 
because people aren't adopting. It takes a lot of extra uh, money and you know resources and, and infrastructure for the charging infrastructure that's not in place. And I mean, this goes to the overall affordability uh, issues that we have in our state, where housing is unaffordable. Now, transportation is going to be made more unaffordable because uh, you know electric vehicles are 15% more expensive uh, than internal combustion engine vehicles. You have to out retrofit your house with the charging station. You have to worry about uh, you know if you're trying to do long trips about uh, getting a different type of vehicle that can maintain that type of thing. And and realistically, uh, you know the mandates really put us in a bad position as a state in terms of if we're trying to address things like affordability and housing and everything like that. Uh, because again, the next biggest expense besides your housing costs is your usually your car payment. Uh, and if we're going ahead and making people or enticing people to do heat pumps and retrofitting their houses and electric panels and stuff like that, that's additional costs that's just going to add more to, to the bottom line. I, I was going to say, I think the interesting thing about that too is that there are mandates for where Rhode Island has to reduce, how much Rhode Island has to reduce emissions. There are no mandates for what residents or businesses have to do. Right now, the state is taking this lead by example approach, which it's also sort of not Ironic. ironically <laughs> not meeting itself, but then sort of expecting that people will through incentives or just kind of like modeling of good behavior, people will follow suit. And it's a big jump that we need to get to from 2020 to 2030 in, in terms of the carbon reduction. And we're already at 23. And government, there's turnover. Who's keeping track of, you know, is there one person keeping his or her eye on the ball? Well, I guess the one person is not keeping his or her eye on the ball because each department, for example, with the state, they do their own purchasing. So, I mean, in terms of this waiver, thing, which is right. almost universally accepted, you got to have somebody that's in charge that can say, look, and unless you have a really good reason to have a waiver, then we need to do these kinds of things in terms of these light vehicles that's going to help reduce these emissions. And I think that, you know, as far as uh, uh, the, the technology that's being developed, I think it's, it's, it's rapidly coming online. I know the governor's putting $25 million into uh, technology to make sure that... Charging stations. Charging stations. So, mm. so things are happening a little bit faster than they were even three or four years ago. So you have that. And I just think that, um, you know, there's got to be a happy balance here. I know that electric vehicles are more expensive, but if you're going to reduce emissions over time, you have, to, you have to create that balance. I don't think there's anything else you can do but do that. The story Billy alluded to that I did uh, in late September was that the, that, the, that the government is supposed to be meeting a certain uh, deadline, but what you were talking about is the purchasing. So if, if DEM or DOT or whoever wants a car, they have their own budget. So if it's going to cost a lot more for an EV, are they going to mm -hmm. do that? And they've never denied a waiver. Mm -hmm. So there's really no teeth. No wonder there's only 10% right. rather than 25%. Yeah, it's 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 something that, um, you know, again, it's I think the idea of electric vehicles is a feel-good idea that people say, oh, we'll, we'll mandate this stuff and, you know, everybody will be driving electric vehicles. But when the actual rubber hits the road, no pun intended, uh, the cost is just, out, just not uh, feasible. You sent me a detailed email, no surprise. Whenever I do a story, Billy gives me the whole rundown in a good way, stuff that I hadn't thought about, the weight yeah. of electric vehicles. And so talk about that a little bit. Parking decks. Yep. So, uh, well, that's just something that I, I thought about is, uh, our, is our current infrastructure, especially being in the Northeast with older infrastructure, are the parking structures available to take the additional weight of these vehicles? I work in the insurance industry. Uh, one of the big issues is the third party liability of these, uh, inf these vehicles because obviously a heavier vehicle is safer for the occupants, but if you hit a smaller car or a pedestrian or a bicyclist, uh, you're going to create a lot more damage for those individuals. Uh, the other end of it is the physical damage coverage 
is much more expensive on these vehicles as well too because uh, the batteries are integrated in the frame of these vehicles. So if you get into a minor fender bender, a lot of times it damages the battery and you have to total the entire vehicle. And with the carbon emissions to create these vehicles is significantly more expensive uh, than it is for an internal combustion engine vehicle. So if you inevitably total a car with less than 60,000 miles on it, uh, you're going to have a negative carbon net negative impact compared to an internal combustion engine that's easier, easier to repair as well. Just finally, where are we on this? What's the next benchmark? So We're the still next ways benchmark off. is 2030, um, which is we're supposed to reduce emissions below the 1990 baseline by 45%. But interim reports in between? I mean, are we going to hear anything so in So DEM is supposed to be coming out with its next sort of update, but it's and there'll be annual inventories, but there's no benchmarks in Act on Climate until 2030. Well, and my memory was in the whole, um, the, the lead by example, the, the changing of the uh, executive order that Governor McKee did that I reported on got lost in the headlines of, and these are going to be DEM regulations, no gasoline cars sold mm -hmm. in 2035. And I think DEM still has to have those hearings, right? That's right, not yeah, quite there Right, yeah, I think it's yet. still a, propo it's a proposed rule at this point, so it's not considered a final rule yet. Okay. We are uh, very close to uh, the CD1 race. Uh, there hasn't really been any polling up until this week. Gabe Amo, of course, against uh, Gary Leonard in the special election to replace David Cicilline. It uh, turns out that Salve Regina did a poll that showed that uh, uh, Mr. Amo is ahead of Mr. Leonard, 46 to 35, but with 15 percent undecided. That kind of jumped out at me. Like, people at this point wouldn't know who they were voting for. Well, that jumped out at me, too. But uh, what also jumped out at me is that among independents, uh, actually, Mr. Leonard is leading Gabe Amo 26 to 25, with 40 percent being undecided. And we're what in are you reading to that? <laughs> well, that means that the election is not uh, going to be a 30 or 40 point blowout, like some people might think it could have been. It's going to be close. And I think that, you know, the fact that 54 percent of the uh, elect, uh, elected voters or the voters, the registered voters, are either independent or Republican, 54 percent, the majority, anything can happen. So I think that, you know, uh, Mr. Amo probably will be winning, and he's a great candidate. I know him well, know his family. Uh, I just think that, you know, we'll see this two television debates, and we'll take some poll, and we'll see what happens. It's been kind of quiet. Yeah, this race has been <laughs> such a sleeper. Set, you know, the pr up to the primary was wild, and then it just fell asleep you know, comatose. And I think to me what, what was, as you said, you know, so many people being undecided, I also sort of wonder, honestly, in answering a poll, does undecided really mean I don't care enough to vote? And I think, I do think there's perhaps a level of apathy or even just unawareness. You know, we're all tuned into it because of our jobs, but um, there's not, if you are just the average resident, you're not probably seeing or hearing much about the race in the news or on TV. You know, maybe these two televised debates next week will liven things up a little bit, um, create some more voter interest. But to me, um, what that really says is people are just not necessarily interested enough in this race to vote. You had reported the Secretary of State's uh, vote tracker. It really seems like not a lot of people are even doing the early voting. Yeah, I mean, I think like some people will always vote early and those are the people who are most committed is what, you know, political scientists say. The people who have their minds made up are super politically active. And I think in an off-year election, in general, we're not going to see high turnout. But the early voting is low. And um, I, I don't know that it's even going to, you know, turn out. Spike as, on election day. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't think the Leonard campaign is going to break 40 percent. I'd be surprised if they gather a third of the vote in this election, to be honest with you. There was a lot uh, more enthusiasm around the Ashley Kalis uh, campaign, and she fell flat on her face, to be honest with you. So I, I really think that special elections provide an opportunity for uh, an upset of the establishment candidate. Um, I just haven't seen the get out the vote in the ground game from the Leonard campaign. I mean, you know, obviously you're going to have the Republicans that are going to vote for the Republicans and the Democrats are going to vote for the Democrats. But, you know, as an unaffiliated voter, my my wife, I have friends and family that are unaffiliated voters. We're not being reached out to by the campaign to, you know, again, to sway the undecided. You'd be the ones. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest with you, uh, the Democrats chose the moderate uh, a candidate in Gabe Amo. So if you sit there and look at the independents and they, especially with what's going on in Congress and the Speaker's race, uh, Speaker of the House race and everything like that, uh, they very well could just say he's a moderate Democrat and just decide to go vote for Gabe. And you think it would be a different dynamic if it was Aaron Regenberg or somebody who was a little oh, bit more I think more it would be a completely different race. And, you know, anecdotally, um, it's very interesting to see that a lot of, you know, Terry Flynn signs and even Alan Water signs have been replaced by Gary Len Jerry Leonard uh, signs. Uh, but I, I have not noticed any in marketable increase in Gabe Amo signs. Uh, the Regenberg signs have come down. The Kano signs have come down. Uh, the Matos uh, signs have come down. And they haven't been replaced by anything. So I wonder if there's a little bit of apathy in the Democratic Party. But I still think in the end they come out and vote and support the candidate. You know, I've been thinking about this this week. You think about 2016, the election. Hillary Clinton, a lot of people, both candidates had their issues, Trump and Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton, a lot of people just sat out that race. And 8 million fewer people voted in that election, Democrats, than did um, it, for Obama in 2012. And I wonder, I don't think it's going to repeat itself with a Leonard victory, but you wonder whether it's a complacency that a lot of the Democrats just think, Amo's got it. Why do I need to go? And you wonder whether that's going to narrow. I don't know if he's going to break the 40 percent, whether you're going to narrow it. Because people like Gabe Amo, he's, I don't need to go to the polls. It's a special election. Right? Well, I think that could happen. And that's why uh, Gabe, the Gabe Amo campaign needs to be diligent, because anything can happen in a special election, especially an off your election like this it seems to be playing out into. So I think that he has to work all the way through the end of the end of the line, through the tape. I've talked to him. He said he's definitely going to do that. And, uh, you know, like I said, 40% of the independents are undecided. And he's leading, or he's, uh, Leonard is leading him among independents 26 to 25. So that, I mean, that number might not be credible, but, I mean, you've got to look at that. I, mean, I, th I think what works in his favor is to get out the vote. And clearly he did that for the primary. And this is Mr. Leonard's first race, but almost been through this now. And then he's got the whole Democratic machine behind him. Right. I mean, he's also got the funding. You know, the latest uh, pre-primary uh, campaign finance reports came out yesterday. And he has, you know, so much more funding and cash on hand than Gary Leonard does. But I do think, um, you know, from my perspective as a journalist, it's not just Gary who's kind of dropping the ball on the campaigning post-primary, like Gabe Amo pre-primary, every single day we got a thing in our inbox, Gabe on the road, here's where he's going to be, here's nobody what he's going to do, and then he won the primary, and it was like those emails stopped, everyone was like, what's he doing, where is he, trying to get a hold of him for an interview was difficult, um, it still is, and, you know, he's, he's become a little bit more, there was some criticism of him for that, and I think now he started, you know, posting on Twitter some photos of him making the rounds, but he's not run, he's, he's turning down uh, debates, deciding to only do two, which is his prerogative, but his campaign is not running at the same sort of public steam and momentum that it was pre-primary. I, I believe totally that's consultants driving that. Mm -hmm. I think it's all consultants saying, you don't, look, you're, you've got a comfortable lead, just don't step in it before the race. Uh, final thought, do you think he should have done more than two debates? Uh, no, I think he should have uh, 
looked at this as something that was going to be a close race. Respect the candidate, G Jerry or Gary. I'm not sure. Gary. 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 Oh, Gary. Not sure what his Which name people is. people don't even know because he's not out there. <laughs> they, they, they know now because of the ad. But anyway. <laughs> Gary, Larry, Terry. Gary, Larry, Larry, whatever his name is. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think that for, to, to just assume you're going to walk right in there because you're a Democrat, I think it would have been erroneous. I think you've got to make sure that you don't open yourself up to giving the opponent exposure uh, that you didn't have to do and then finding out that you lost a close election. I mean, he's not uh, running for, to be uh, the uh, head uh, of uh, democracy uh, debate, uh, you know, whatever uh, award you get to, to, to be that person. He's trying to win an election. How many should he have done? I, I mean, I, again, I don't think the debates are going to make any, any amount of difference in this race. I mean, obviously, you want the candidates to interview for the job, and, you know, but I, I, I don't think that it's pe enough people are tuned into this election at all to even care about the debates or even watch the debates. And unless some crazy thing happens, which usually doesn't happen in debates, I don't think they're going to make any difference if they did two, ten, or, uh, or none, to be honest with you. All right, time marches on. Let's do outrageous and or kudos. Mr. Vincent, let's begin with you this week. Okay, my kudo is... Uh Kasdi Cavallo, who has uh, made the list. Long-time attorney in Long-time attorney with Lopes, Lopes Pinon, Devereux, and Ogara. Uh, very smart guy, very well-known, uh, very well-respected. He's made the list of, for the most recent vacancy in district court, which was uh, vacated by uh, uh, Mr. Smith, Chris Smith, who now is on the Superior Court. So I think that this is a golden opportunity to have somebody that is excellent to be on that court. Let's keep in mind, uh, of the 87 judges in Rhode Island, only seven are, of are black or brown. Only seven. That's 8% in a state where 25% are black and brown. So we have a chance to move up from that 8% to maybe 10%. And I'm not a math major or a bean counter, but if we were to get 25% of the 87, that'd be 21 or 22 judges. That'll take another 100 years at the pace that we're going. So we need to be intentional and deliberate. We need to have Gas Casdi Cavallo fill that vacancy. You called it right here on uh, the Supreme Court, right? That's right. Melissa Long. Melissa Long. I called it, and I think Casdi Cavallo will be uh, the you next. You called it after you called Governor to, uh, McKee about 100 times, right? <laughs> well, not quite 100. Uh, so I think I think, uh, I think Kaz will be uh, an excellent judge, and I think uh, he needs to be on that district court, uh, and I think we all will be better off. Billy, what do you have? Uh, my outrage is about the, uh, the proliferation of nonprofit electioneering in uh, in all the campaigns recently, especially in the special election. We talked about uh, not being contacted by uh, the Leonard campaign. I've been contacted by numerous special interests that are supporting the bond referendums that are happening right now. And it really seems like it's violating the spirit of the, uh, the nonprofit uh, election requirement laws and everything. We're not talking about C 501c5 organizations. We're talking about 501c3 organizations uh, that are blatantly participating in political hot-button issues. Uh, not only are they tax-exempt themselves, but their donors can get tax uh, exempts for any donations they make to the nonprofits themselves. Uh, and, you know, there's this weird shell game of corporations taking money from nonprofits to do independent expenditures. Coalitions get formed between uh, nonprofits and corporations. And, uh, you know, taxpayers are actually sending money to a lot of these nonprofits as well uh, through the state budget. And it really doesn't seem right that the shadow government is uh, is a basically this nonprofit uh, you know juggernaut that is having a lot of say in the state government and it seems like it needs to be something that needs to be addressed. And you wonder who's paying attention to that and enforcing it because 501c3 strict nonprofit 501c4 mm -hmm. you can do a little bit of lobbying but who who is enforcing that it's, right? I, the, you know I, I've uh, had some questions and back and forth with the board of election there's very narrow time frame something like 90 days uh, that you're only allowed to have uh, in order to uh, actually can make a 
complaint against some of these things. So it's really a, a flawed system and it needs to be addressed. All right, let's go to Nancy. Nancy, first of all, I didn't welcome you. Welcome for your Thank debut you. of Lively. Thank nice you. to have you. You can read all of Nancy's stuff on the, uh, the, uh, the Rhode Island Current, which has been doing some great work. Um, you. you get the last minute. Yeah, so it's a kudos over an outrage. Um, Eli, oh, I do a twofer. I like that. <laughs> love it. Um, so Eli Sherman at PRI, love his work as always. He had a really good story this week about the Woonsocket mayor sort of unilaterally purchasing for a million dollars a property in Woonsocket that she intends to use to build affordable housing on that's valued at $200,000. And sort of the kicker to this is that the city council didn't know about it. Um, it may be a, a charter violation because, uh, you know, typically purchases over $100,000 would have to get city council approval. She's saying it doesn't have to because it's using HUD funds. Kind of is this whole back and forth and obviously there is a story of back and forth and charter violations and you know, uh, tensions between the council and the mayor in Woonsocket. Um, I think to me the other sort of component of kudos is I've covered a little bit of Woonsocket politics and it is tough to, it's tough not to crack. They don't like reporters very much there, yeah. so. Okay, that is all the time we have. Billy and Nancy, nice to see you and Jim. Folks, come back here. We're heading into the home stretch to CD1, our last show before the election next week. So be sure and join us for that. Hope you have a great weekend and join us back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.